Section 40 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Horatio, I wonder you should talk of teaching and lay so great a stress on a thing that comes so naturally to us as thinking. No action is performed with greater velocity by everybody. As quick as thought is a proverb, and in less than a moment a stupid peasant may remove his ideas from London to Japan, as easily as the greatest wit. Cleomenes, yet there is nothing in which men differ so immensely from one another as they do in the exercise of this faculty. The differences between them in height, bulk, strength, and beauty are trifling in comparison to that which I speak of, and there is nothing in the world more valuable or more plainly perceptible in persons than a happy dexterity of thinking. Two men may have equal knowledge, and yet the one shall speak as well off-hand as the other can after two hours' study. Horatio, I take it for granted that no man would study two hours for a speech if he knew how to make it in less, and therefore I cannot see what reason you have to suppose two such persons to be of equal knowledge. Cleomenes, there is a double meaning in the word knowing, which you seem not to attend to, there is a great difference between knowing a violin when you see it and knowing how to play upon it. The knowledge I speak of is of the first sort, and if you consider it in that sense, you must be of my opinion, for no study can fetch anything out of the brain that is not there. Suppose you conceive a short epistle in three minutes, which another, who can make letters and join them together as fast as yourself, is yet an hour about, though both of you write the same thing, it is plain to me that the slow person knows as much as you do, at least it does not appear that he knows less. He has received the same images, but he cannot come at them, or at least not dispose them in that order, so soon as yourself. When we see two exercises of equal goodness, either in prose or verse, if the one is made ex tempore, and we are sure of it, and the other has cost two days' labor, the author of the first is a person of finer natural parts than the other, though their knowledge, for aught we know, is the same. You see, then, the difference between knowledge as it signifies the treasure of images received, and knowledge, or rather skill, to find out those images when we want them, and work them readily to our purpose. Horatio, when we know a thing, and cannot readily think of it or bring it to mind, I thought that was the fault of the memory. Cleomenes, so it may be in part, but there are men of prodigious learning that have likewise great memories, who judge ill, and seldom say anything a propos, or say it when it is too late. Among the belluones liberorum, the cormorants of books, there are wretched reasoners that have canine appetites and no digestion. What numbers of learned fools do we not meet with in large libraries, from whose works it is evident that knowledge must have lain in their heads as furniture at an upholder's? and the treasure of the brain was a burden to them instead of an ornament. All this proceeds from a defect in the faculty of thinking, an unskillfulness and want of aptitude in managing, to the best advantage, the ideas we have received. We see others, on the contrary, that have very fine sense and no literature at all. The generality of women are quicker of invention and more ready at repartee than the men, with equal helps of education and it is surprising to see what a considerable figure some of them make in conversation when we consider the small opportunities they have had of acquiring knowledge. Horatio, but sound judgment is a great rarity among them. Cleomenes, 
only for want of practice, application, and assiduity. Thinking on abstruse matters is not their province in life, and as the stations they are commonly placed in find them other employment, but there is no labor of the brain which women are not as capable of performing, at least as well as the men, with the same assistance, if they set about and persevere in it. Sound judgment is no more than the result of that labor. He that uses himself to take things to pieces, to compare them together, to consider them abstractly and impartially, that is, he who of two propositions he is to examine seems not to care which is true. He that lays the whole stress of his mind on every part alike, and puts the same thing in all the views it can be seen in. He, I say, that employs himself most often in this exercise, is most likely, ceteris paribus, to acquire what we call a sound judgment. The workmanship in the make of women seems to be more elegant and better finished. The features are more delicate. The voice is sweeter. The whole outside of them is more curiously wove than they are in men. And the difference in the skin between theirs and ours is the same as there is between fine cloth and coarse. There is no reason to imagine that nature should have been more neglectful of them out of sight than she has where we can trace her and not have taken the same care of them in the formation of the brain as to the nicety of the structure and superior accuracy in the fabric which is so visible in the rest of their frame horatio beauty is their attribute as strength is ours cleomenes how minute soever those particles of the brain are that contain several images and are assisting in the operation of thinking there must be a difference in the justness, the symmetry and exactness of them between one person and another, as well as there is in the grosser parts. What the women excel us in, then, is the goodness of the instrument, either in the harmony or pliableness of the organs, which must be very material in the art of thinking, and is the only thing that deserves the name of natural parts, since the aptitude I have spoken of, depending upon exercise, is notoriously acquired. Horatio, as the workmanship in the brain is rather more curious in women than it is in men, so, in sheep and oxen, dogs and horses, I suppose it is infinitely coarser. Cleomenes, we have no reason to think otherwise. Horatio, but after all, that self, that part of us that wills and wishes, that chooses one thing rather than another, must be incorporeal, for if it is matter, it must either be one single particle which I can almost feel it is not, or a combination of many, which is more than inconceivable. Cleomenes, I do not deny what you say, and that the principle of thought and action is inexplicable in all creatures I have hinted already, but its being incorporeal does not mend the matter, as to the difficulty of explaining or conceiving it, that there must be a mutual contact between this principle, whatever it is, and the body itself, is what we are certain of a posteriori and a reciprocal action upon each other between an immaterial substance and matter is as incomprehensible to human capacity as that thought should be the result of matter and motion horatio though many other animals seem to be endued with thought there is no creature we are acquainted with besides man that shows or seems to feel a consciousness of his thinking cleomenes it is not easy to determine what instincts, properties, or capacities other creatures are either possessed or destitute of, when those qualifications fall not under our senses, but it is highly probable 
that the principal and most necessary parts of the machine are less elaborate in animals that attain to all the perfection they are capable of in three four five or six years at furthest than they are in a creature that hardly comes to maturity its full growth and strength in five and twenty the consciousness of a man of fifty that he is the same man that did such a thing at twenty and was once the boy that had such and such masters depends wholly upon the memory and can never be traced to the bottom i mean that no man remembers anything of himself of what was transacted before he was two years old when he was but a novice in the art of thinking and the brain was not yet of a due consistence to retain long the images it received but this remembrance how far soever it may reach gives us no greater surety of ourselves than we should have of another that had been brought up with us and never above a week or a month out of sight a mother when her son is thirty years old has more reason to know that he is the same whom she brought into the world than himself and such a one who daily minds her son and remembers the alterations of his features from time to time is more certain of him that he was not changed in the cradle than she can be of herself so that all we can know of this consciousness is that it consists in or is the result of the running and rummaging of the spirits through all the mazes of the brain and they are looking there for facts concerning ourselves he that has lost his memory though otherwise in perfect health cannot think better than a fool and is no more conscious that he is the same he was a year ago than he is of a man whom he has known but a fortnight there are several degrees of losing our memory but he who has entirely lost it becomes ipso facto an idiot horatio i am conscious of having been the occasion of our rambling a great way from the subject we were upon but i do not repent of it what you have said of the economy of the brain and the mechanical influence of thought upon the grosser parts is a noble theme for contemplation on the infinite unutterable wisdom with which the various instincts are so visibly planted in all animals to fit them for the respective purposes they were designed for and every appetite is so wonderfully interwove with the very substance of their frame nothing could be more seasonable after you had showed me the origin of politeness and in the management of self-liking set forth the excellency of our species beyond all other animals so conspicuously in the superlative docility and indefatigable industry by which all multitudes are capable of drawing innumerable benefits as well for the ease and comfort as the welfare and safety of congregate bodies from a most stubborn and unconquerable passion which in its nature seems to be destructive to sociableness and society and never fails in untaught men to render them insufferable to one another cleomenes by the same method of reasoning from facts a posteriori that has laid open to us the nature and usefulness of self-liking all the rest of the passions may be easily accounted for and become intelligible it is evident that the necessaries of life stand not everywhere ready dished up before all creatures therefore they have instincts that prompt them to look out for those necessaries and teach them how to come at them the zeal and alacrity to gratify their appetites is always proportioned to the strength and the degree of force with which those instincts work upon every creature but considering the disposition of things upon earth and the multiplicity of animals that have all their own wants to supply it must be obvious that these attempts of creatures to obey the different calls of nature 
will be often opposed and frustrated, and that, in many animals, they would seldom meet with success if every individual was not endued with a passion that, summoning all his strength, inspired him with a transporting eagerness to overcome the obstacles that hinder him in his great work of self-preservation. The passion I describe is called anger. How a creature possessed of this passion and self-liking, when he sees others enjoy what he wants, should be affected with envy, can likewise be no mystery. After labor, the most savage and the most industrious creature seeks rest. Hence we learn that all of them are furnished, more or less, with a love of ease. Exerting their strength tires them, and the loss of spirits, experience teaches us, is best repaired by food and sleep. We see that creatures who, in their way of living, must meet with the greatest opposition, have the greatest share of anger, and are born with offensive arms. If this anger was to employ a creature always, without consideration of the danger he exposed himself to, he would soon be destroyed. For this reason, they are all endued with fear, and the lion himself turns tail, if the hunters are armed and too numerous. From what we observe in the behavior of brutes, we have reason to think that among the more perfect animals, those of the same species have a capacity, on many occasions, to make their wants known to one another. And we are sure of several, not only that they understand one another, but likewise that they may be made to understand us. In comparing our species with that of other animals, when we consider the make of man, and the qualifications that are obvious to him, his superior capacity and the faculties of thinking and reflecting beyond other creatures, his being capable of learning to speak, and the usefulness of his hands and fingers, there is no room to doubt that he is more fit for society than any other animal we know. Horatio, since you wholly reject my lord Shaftesbury's system, I wish you would give me your opinion at large concerning society and the sociableness of man, and I will hearken to you with great attention. Cleomenes, the cause of sociableness in man, that is, his fitness for society, is no such abstruse matter. A person of middling capacity, that has some experience and a tolerable knowledge of human nature, may soon find it out, if his desire of knowing the truth be sincere, and he will look for it without prepossession. But most people that have treated on this subject had a turn to serve, and a cause in view, which they were resolved to maintain. It is very unworthy of a philosopher to say, as Hobbes did, that man is born unfit for society, and allege no better reason for it than the incapacity that infants come into the world with. But some of his adversaries have as far overshot the mark, when they asserted that everything which man can attain to ought to be esteemed as a cause of his fitness for society. Horatio. But is there in the mind of man a natural affection that prompts him to love his species beyond what other animals have for theirs? Or are we born with hatred and aversion that makes us wolves and bears to one another? Cleomenes, I believe neither. From what appears to us in human affairs and the works of nature, we have more reason to imagine that the desire as well as aptness of man to associate do not proceed from his love to others then we have to believe that a mutual affection of the planets to one another, superior of what they feel to stars more remote, is not the true cause why they keep always moving together in the same solar system. Horatio, you do not believe that the stars have any love for one another, I am sure. Then why more reason? Cleomenes, 
Because there are no phenomena plainly to contradict this love of the planets, and we meet with thousands every day to convince us that man centers everything in himself, and neither loves nor hates but for his own sake, every individual is a little world by itself, and all creatures, as far as their understanding and abilities will let them, endeavor to make that self happy. This, in all of them, is the continual labor, and seems to be the whole design of life. Hence it follows that in the choice of things, men must be determined by the perception they have of happiness, and no person can commit or set about an action which, at that then present time, seems not to be the best to him. Horatio, what will you then say to Video meliora proboque deteriora sequor? Cleomenes, that only shows the turpitude of our inclinations, but men may say what they please. Every motion in a free agent, which he does not approve of, is either convulsive or it is not his. I speak of those that are subject to the will. When two things are left to a person's choice, it is a demonstration that he thinks that most eligible which he chooses, how contradictory, impertinent, or pernicious soever his reason for choosing it may be. Without this, there could be no voluntary suicide, and it would be injustice to punish men for their crimes. Horatio, I believe everybody endeavors to be pleased, but it is inconceivable that creatures of the same species should differ so much from one another as men do in their notions of pleasure, and that some of them should take delight in what is the greatest aversion to others. All aim at happiness, but the question is, where is it to be found? Cleomenes, it is with complete felicity in this world, as it is with the philosopher's stone. Both have been sought after many different ways, by wise men as well as fools, though neither of them has been obtained hitherto, but in searching after either, diligent inquirers have often stumbled by chance on useful discoveries of things they did not look for, and which human sagacity, laboring with design a priori, never would have detected. Multitudes of our species may, in any habitable part of the globe, assist one another in a common defense, and be raised into a politic body, in which men shall live comfortably together for many centuries, without being acquainted with a thousand things, that if known, would every one of them be instrumental to render the happiness of the public more complete, according to the common notions men have of happiness. In one part of the world we have found great and flourishing nations that knew nothing of ships, and in others traffic by sea had been in use above two thousand years, and navigation had received innumerable improvements before they knew how to sail by the help of the lodestone. It would be ridiculous to allege this piece of knowledge, either as a reason why man first chose to go to sea, or as an argument to prove his natural capacity for maritime affairs. To raise a garden, it is necessary that we should have a soil and a climate fit for that purpose. When we have these, we want nothing besides patience, but the seeds of vegetables and proper culture. Fine walks and canals, statues, summer houses, fountains, and cascades are great improvements on the delights of nature, but they are not essential to the existence of a garden. All nations must have had mean beginnings, and it is in those, the infancy of them, that the sociableness of man is as conspicuous as it can be ever after. Man is called a sociable creature chiefly for two reasons. First, because it is commonly imagined that he is naturally more fond and desirous of society than any other creature. Secondly, because it is manifest that associating in men turns to better account 
than it possibly could do in other animals, if they were to attempt it. Horatio, but why do you say of the first that it is commonly imagined? Is it not true, then? Cleomenes, I have a very good reason for this caution. All men born in society are certainly more desirous of it than any other animal, but whether man be naturally so, that is a question. But if he was, it is no excellency, nothing to brag of. The love man has for his ease and security, and his perpetual desire of meliorating his condition, must be sufficient motives to make him fond of society, concerning the necessitous and helpless condition of his nature. Horatio, do you not fall into the same error which, you say, Hobbes has been guilty of, when you talk of men's necessitous and helpless condition? Cleomenes, not at all. I speak of men and women full-grown, and the more extensive their knowledge is, the higher their quality, and the greater their possessions are, the more necessitous and helpless they are in their nature. A nobleman of twenty-five or thirty thousand pounds a year, that has three or four coaches and six, and above fifty people to serve him, is in his person considered singly, abstract from what he possesses, more necessitous than an obscure man that has but fifty pounds a year, and is used to walk afoot. So a lady, who never stuck a pin in herself, and is dressed and undressed from head to foot, like a jointed baby by her woman, and the assistance of another maid or two, is a more helpless creature than Doll the dairymaid, who, all the winter long, dresses herself in the dark in less time than the other bestows in placing of her patches. Horatio, but is the desire of meliorating our condition which you named so general that no man is without it? Cleomenes, not one that can be called a sociable creature, and I believe this to be as much a characteristic of our species as any can be named. For there is not a man in the world, educated in society, who, if he could compass it by wishing, would not have something added to, taken from, or altered in his person, possessions, circumstances, or any part of the society he belongs to. This is what is not to be perceived in any creature but man, whose great industry in supplying what he calls his wants could never have been known so well as it is, if it had not been for the unreasonableness as well as multiplicity of his desires. From all which it is manifest that the most civilized people stand most in need of society, and consequently none less than savages. The second reason for which I said man was called sociable is that associating together turned to better account in our species than it would do in any other, if they were to try it. To find out the reason of this, we must search into human nature for such qualifications as we excel all other animals in, and which the generality of men are endued with, taught or untaught. But in doing this, we should neglect nothing that is observable in them, from their most early youth to their extreme old age. Horatio, I cannot see why you use this precaution of taking in the whole age of man. Would it not be sufficient to mind those qualifications which he is possessed of, when he has come to the height of maturity, or his greatest perfection? Cleomenes, a considerable part of what is called docility in creatures, depends upon the pliableness of the parts, and their fitness to be moved with facility, which are eitherly entirely lost, or very much impaired when they are full grown. There is nothing in which our species so far surpasses all others than in the capacity of acquiring the faculty of thinking and speaking well, that this is a peculiar property belonging to our nature is very certain, yet it is as manifest that this capacity vanishes when we come to maturity, if till then it has been neglected. 
the term of life likewise that is commonly enjoyed by our species being longer than it is in most other animals we have a prerogative above them in point of time and man has a greater opportunity of advancing in wisdom though not to be acquired but by his own experience than a creature that lives but half his age though it had the same capacity a man of threescore ceteris paribus knows better what is to be embraced or avoided in life than a man of thirty what mitio in excusing the follies of youth said of his brother demia in the adelphi ad omnia alia etate sapimus rectius holds among savages as well as among philosophers it is the concurrence of these with other properties that together compose the sociableness of man horatio but why may not the love of our species be named as one of these properties cleomenes first because as i have said already it does not appear that we have it beyond other animals secondly because it is out of the question for if we examine into the nature of all bodies politic we shall find that no dependence is ever had or stress laid on any such affection either for the raising or maintaining of them horatio but the epithet itself the signification of the word imports this love to one another as is manifest from the contrary one who loves solitude is averse to company or of a singular reserved and sullen temper is the very reverse of a sociable man cleomenes when we compare some men to others the word i own is often used in that sense but when we speak of a quality peculiar to our species and say that man is a sociable creature the word implies no more than that in our nature we have a certain fitness by which great multitudes of us cooperating may be united and formed into one body that endued with and able to make use of the strength skill and prudence of every individual shall govern itself and act on all emergencies as if it was animated by one soul and actuated by one will i am willing to allow that among the motives that prompt man to enter into society there is a desire which he has naturally after company but he has it for his own sake in hopes of being the better for it and he would never wish for either company or anything else but for some advantage or other he proposes to himself from it what i deny is that man naturally has such a desire out of a fondness for his species superior to what other animals have for theirs it is a compliment which we commonly pay to ourselves but there is no more reality in it than in our being one another's humble servants and i insist upon it that this pretended love of our species and natural affection we are said to have for one another beyond other animals is neither instrumental to the erecting of societies nor ever trusted to in our prudent commerce with one another when associated any more than if it had no existence the undoubted basis of all societies is government this truth well examined into will furnish us with all the reasons of man's excellency as to sociableness it is evident from it that creatures to be raised into a community must in the first place be governable this is a qualification that requires fear and some degree of understanding for a creature not susceptible to fear is never to be governed and the more sense and courage it has the more refractory and untractable it will be without the influence of that useful passion and again fear without understanding puts creatures only upon avoiding the danger dreaded without considering what will become of themselves afterwards so wild birds will beat out their brains against the cage before they will save their lives by eating there is a great difference between being submissive and being governable 
for he who barely submits to another only embraces what he dislikes to shun what he dislikes more and we may be very submissive and be of no use to the person we submit to but to be governable implies an endeavor to please and a willingness to exert ourselves in behalf of the person that governs but love beginning everywhere at home no creature can labor for others and be easy long whilst self is wholly out of the question therefore a creature is then truly governable when reconciled to submission it has learned to construe his servitude to his own advantage and rests satisfied with the account it finds for itself in the labor it performs for others several kinds of animals are or may with little trouble be made thus governable but there is not one creature so tame that it can be made to serve its own species but man yet without this he could never have been made sociable horatio but was not man by nature designed for society cleomenes we know from revelation that man was made for society horatio but if it had not been revealed or you had been a chinese or a mexican what would you answer me as a philosopher cleomenes that nature had designed man for society as she has made grapes for wine horatio to make wine is an invention of man as it is to press oil from olives and other vegetables and to make ropes of hemp cleomenes and so it is to form a society of independent multitudes and there is nothing that requires greater skill horatio but is not the sociableness of man the work of nature or rather the author of nature divine providence cleomenes without doubt but so is the innate virtue and peculiar aptitude of everything that grapes are fit to make wine and barley and water to make liquors is the work of providence but it is human sagacity that finds out the uses we make of them all the other capacities of man likewise as well as his sociableness are evidently derived from god who made him everything therefore that our industry can produce or compass is originally owing to the author of our being but when we speak of the works of nature to distinguish them from those of art we mean such as were brought forth without our concurrence so nature in due season produces peas but in england you cannot have them green in january without art and uncommon industry what nature designs she executes herself there are creatures of whom it is visible that nature has designed them for society as is most obvious in bees to whom she has given instincts for that purpose as appears from the effects we owe our being and everything to the great author of the universe but as societies cannot subsist without his preserving power so they cannot exist without the concurrence of human wisdom all of them must have a dependence either on mutual compact or the force of the strong exerting itself upon the patience of the weak the difference between the works of art and those of nature is so immense that it is impossible not to know them asunder knowing a priori belongs to god only and divine wisdom acts with an original certainty of which what we call demonstration is but an imperfect borrowed copy amongst the works of nature therefore we see no trials nor essays they are all complete and such as she would have them at the first production and where she has not been interrupted highly finished beyond the reach of our understanding as well as senses wretched man on the contrary is sure of nothing his own existence not accepted but from reasoning a posteriori the consequence of this is that the works of art and human invention are all very lame and defective 
and most of them pitifully mean at first. Our knowledge is advanced by slow degrees, and some arts and sciences require the experience of many ages before they can be brought to any tolerable perfection. Have we any reason to imagine that the society of bees that sent forth the first swarm made worse wax or honey than any of their posterity have produced since? And again the laws of nature are fixed and unalterable. In all her orders and regulations there is a stability, nowhere to be met with, in things of human contrivance and approbation. Quid placet at odio est quod non mutabile credas? Is it probable that amongst the bees there has ever been any other form of government than what every swarm submits to now? What infinite variety of speculations, what ridiculous schemes have not been proposed amongst men on the subject of government? What dissensions in opinion, and what fatal quarrels has it not been the occasion of? And which is the best form of it is a question to this day undecided. The projects, good and bad, that have been stated for the benefit and more happy establishment of society are innumerable. But how short-sighted is our sagacity, how fallible human judgment! What has seemed highly advantageous to mankind in one age has often been found to be evidently detrimental by the succeeding. And even among contemporaries, what is revered in one country is the abomination of another. What changes have ever bees made in their furniture or architecture? Have they ever made cells that were not sexangular, or added any tools to those which nature furnished them with at the beginning? What mighty structures have been raised, what prodigious works have been performed by the great nations of the world? Toward all these nature has only found materials. The quarry yields marble, but it is the sculptor that makes a statue of it. To have the infinite variety of iron tools that have been invented, nature has given us nothing but the ore, which she has hid in the bowels of the earth. Horatio, but the capacity of the workmen, the inventors of arts, and those that improve them, has had a great share in bringing those labors to perfection, and their genius they had from nature. Cleomenes, so far as it depended upon the make of their frame, the accuracy of the machine they had, and no further, but this I have allowed already, and if you remember what I have said on this head, you will find that the part which nature contributed toward the skill and patience of every single person that had a hand in those works was very inconsiderable. Horatio, if I have not misunderstood you, you would insinuate two things. First, that the fitness of man for society beyond other animals is something real, but that it is hardly perceptible in individuals before great numbers of them are joined together and artfully managed. Secondly, that this real something, this sociableness, is a compound that consists in a concurrence of several things, and not in any one palpable quality that man is endued with and brutes are destitute of. Cleomenes, you are perfectly right. Every grape contains a small quantity of juice, and when great heaps of them are squeezed together, they yield a liquor which by skillful management may be made into wine. But if we consider how necessary fermentation is to the venosity of the liquor, I mean how essential it is to its being wine, it will be evident to us that without great impropriety of speech, it cannot be said that in every grape there is wine. Horatio, venosity, so far as it is the effect of fermentation, is adventitious, and what none of the grapes could ever have received whilst they remained single, and therefore, if you would compare the sociableness of man to the venosity of wine, you must show me that in society there is an equivalent for fermentation, 
I mean something that individual persons are not actually possessed of whilst they remain single, and which likewise is palpably adventitious to multitudes when joined together, in the same manner as fermentation is to the juice of grapes, and as necessary and essential to the completing of society as that is, that same fermentation, to procure the venosity of wine. Cleomenes, such an equivalent is demonstrable in mutual commerce, for if we examine every faculty and qualification from and for which we judge and pronounce man to be a sociable creature beyond other animals, we shall find that a very considerable, if not the greatest part of the attribute is acquired, and comes upon multitudes from their conversing with one another. Fabricando fabricimus. Men become sociable by living together in society. Natural affection prompts all mothers to take care of the offspring they dare own so far as to feed and keep them from harm whilst they are helpless. But where people are poor, and the women have no leisure to indulge themselves in the various expressions of their fondness for their infants, which fondling of them ever increases, they are often very remiss in tending and playing with them, and the more healthy and quiet such children are, the more they are neglected. This want of prattling to and stirring up the spirits in babes, is often the principal cause of an invincible stupidity as well as ignorance when they are grown up, and we often ascribe to natural incapacity what is altogether owing to the neglect of this early instruction. We have so few examples of human creatures that never conversed with their own species that it is hard to guess what man would be entirely untaught, but we have good reason to believe that the faculty of thinking would be very imperfect in such a one if we consider that the greatest docility can be of no use to a creature, whilst it has nothing to imitate, nor anybody to teach it. Horatio. Philosophers, therefore, are very wisely employed when they discourse about the laws of nature, and pretend to determine what a man in the state of nature would think, and which way he would reason concerning himself and the creation uninstructed. Cleomenes, thinking and reasoning justly, as Mr. Locke has rightly observed, require time and practice. Those that have not used themselves to thinking, but just on their present necessities, make poor work of it, when they try beyond that. In remote parts, and such as are least inhabited, we shall find our species come nearer the state of nature, than it does in and near great cities and considerable towns, even in the most civilized nations." Among the most ignorant of such people, you may learn the truth of my assertion. Talk to them about anything that requires abstract thinking, and there is not one in fifty that will understand you, any more than a horse would. And yet many of them are useful laborers, and cunning enough to tell lies and deceive. Man is a rational creature, but he is not endued with reason when he comes into the world, nor can he afterwards put it on when he pleases, at once, as he may a garment." Speech, likewise, is a characteristic of our species, but no man is born with it, and a dozen generations proceeding from two savages would not produce any tolerable language, nor have we reason to believe that a man could be taught to speak after five-and-twenty if he had never heard others before that time. Horatio, the necessity of teaching, whilst the organs are supple, and easily yield to impression, which you have spoke of before, I believe is of great weight both in speaking and thinking. But could a dog or a monkey ever be taught to speak? Cleomenes, I believe not, but I do not think that creatures of another species had ever the pains bestowed upon them 
that some children have before they can pronounce one word. Another thing to be considered is that though some animals perhaps live longer than we do, there is no species that remains young so long as ours. And besides, what we owe to the superior aptitude to learn, which we have from the great accuracy of our frame and inward structure, we are not a little indebted for our docility, to the slowness and long gradation of our increase, before we are full grown. The organs in other creatures grow stiff before ours are come to half their perfection. Horatio, so that in the compliment we make to our species, of its being endued with speech and sociableness, there is no other reality than that by care and industry men may be taught to speak, and be made sociable if the discipline begins when they are very young. Cleomenes, not otherwise. A thousand of our species all grown up, that is, above five and twenty, could never be made sociable if they had been brought up wild, and were all strangers to one another. Horatio, I believe they could not be civilized if their education began so late. Cleomenes, but I mean barely sociable, as it is the epithet peculiar to man, that is, it would be impossible by art to govern them any more than so many wild horses, unless you had two or three times that number to watch and keep them in awe. Therefore it is highly probable that most societies and beginnings of nations were formed in the manner Sir William Temple supposes it, but nothing near so fast, and I wonder how a man of his unquestionable good sense could form an idea of justice, prudence, and wisdom in an untaught creature, or think of a civilized man before there was any civil society, and even before men had commenced to associate. Horatio, I have read it, I am sure, but I do not remember what it is you mean. Cleomenes, he is just behind you, the third shelf from the bottom, the first volume. Pray, reach it me. It is worth your hearing. Stroke. It is in his essay on government. Here it is. Quote, For if we consider man multiplying his kind by the birth of many children, and his cares by providing even necessary food for them, until they are able to do it for themselves, which happens much later to the generations of men, and makes a much longer dependence of children upon parents than we can observe among any other creatures, if we consider not only the cares but the industry he is forced to for the necessary sustenance of his helpless brood either in gathering the natural fruits or raising those which are purchased with labor and toil if he be forced for a supply of this stock to catch the tamer creatures and hunt the wilder sometimes to exercise his courage in defending his little family and fighting with the strong and savage beasts that would prey upon him as he does upon the weak and mild if we suppose him disposing with discretion and order whatever he gets among his children, according to each of their hunger or need, sometimes laying up for tomorrow what was more than enough for today, at other times pinching himself, rather than suffering any of them should want. Stroke. Unquote. Horatio. This man is no savage or untaught creature. He is fit to be a justice of peace. Cleomenes. Pray let me go on. I shall only read this paragraph. Quote, and as each of them grows up, and able to share in the common support, teaching them, both by lesson and example, what he is now to do, as the son of his family, and what hereafter, as the father of another, instructing them all what qualities are good and what are ill for their health and life, or common society, which will certainly comprehend whatever is generally esteemed virtue or vice among men, cherishing and encouraging dispositions to the good, disfavoring and punishing those to the ill, and lastly, 
among the various accidents of life, lifting up his eyes to heaven when the earth affords him no relief, and having recourse to a higher and a greater nature whenever he finds the frailty of his own, we must needs conclude that the children of this man cannot fail of being bred up with a great opinion of his wisdom, his goodness, his valor, and his piety, and if they see constant plenty in the family, they believe well of his fortune too." Unquote. Horatio, did this man spring out of the earth, I wonder, or did he drop from the sky? Cleomenes, there is no manner of absurdity in supposing stroke. Horatio, the discussion of this would too far engage us. I am sure I have tired you already with my impertinence. Cleomenes, you have pleased me extremely. The questions you have asked have all been very pertinent, and such as every man of sense would make, that had not made it his business to think on these things. I read that passage on purpose to you, to make some use of it, but if you are weary of the subject, I will not trespass upon your patience any longer. Horatio, you mistake me. I begin to be fond of the subject, but before we talk of it any further, I have a mind to run over that essay again. It is a great while since I read it, and after that I shall be glad to resume the discourse. The sooner the better. I know you are a lover of fine fruit. If you will dine with me tomorrow, I will give you an ananas. Cleomenes, I love your company so well that I can refuse no opportunity of enjoying it. Horatio, au revoir, then. Cleomenes, your servant. End of section 40